Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have Richard Foster Fletcher, who is an enterprise sales director at Oracle, and he specializes in areas like data enrichment, artificial intelligence, and blockchain strategies. Richard, would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are and what qualifies you to talk about our subject today, which is customer experience? Of course, Marcus. Uh, it's great to be here. I work across a number of strategic enterprise accounts in the B2B space within Oracle, focusing on improving their customer experience. Yet the landscape's changed quite radically, as you point out. And now improving your customer experience means really thinking about the third-party data available to you and nascent technologies like blockchain and AI and IoT and pull them all together alongside great human service to give clients the experience they expect in 2019. That's great. Thank you. And I'm going to kick in with a difficult question because I think a lot of people confuse customer experience with customer service. And as mm. we know, it tends to be focused on answering problems. You and I both come with a similar perspective, which is if you want better answers, ask better questions. Let's kick off with that. How can good customer experience help you to ask better questions? Hey, that's a terrific question. And although service is clearly a place where sales and upsell and cross-sell can happen, customer experience is in, in reality that loop or what we sometimes call the affinity loop that may start with not knowing who a customer is and finishing up with that customer renewing their service or adding additional products or speaking at events and doing testimonials and reference calls and then coming back into that loop. So it goes on forever. It's a little bit like people talk about digital transformation. Oh, we're doing digital transformation. You are digital transformation. There's no start and stop on a process like that. So in terms of great questions, now that we've got a, a lot of machine learning available, I'm seeing great questions being asked. Well, what customers do we really want? What customers are, are going to renew in three, five years? Um, what customers are going to pay their bills on time? And what, what do we take from our current customers that we can put into a prospecting or database that, that could be future customers, how do we match that? And how do we just get so much smarter in how we go to market? Would you agree? Absolutely. I think one of the mistakes I see people making is they try and please everyone. And in doing that, they please no one. Speaking to Jay McBain, one of his key messages is that the more you niche, the bigger you get. And so really tightening up in terms of who your customer is and who your customer isn't is really key. Now, he's talking about instead of being the MSP of choice in healthcare, you become the leading MSP in care homes in Southeast London. And you're really, really niching down. And the only way you can do that is by asking yourself questions constantly. So tell me this. I mean, I see so much emphasis on the front end of the sale, winning new logos, winning new accounts, new customers. And they kind of miss the point because if you're letting people come in through the front door, but you're letting them out of the back door, that defeats the object of the exercise. So how come retention isn't a higher priority in so many companies? That's a fantastic question. And, and I think that companies have been under huge pressure in this area as well. I've seen companies in the past few years that do particularly do a lot of business with the government are really struggling to have their contract length shortened and thereby not even potentially make a profit on that initial contract length, which means, of course, they have to renew. 
but I, I get the feeling that in days gone by, and I'm about 15 years in business now, that um, perhaps it was easier to get the renewal, or perhaps the contracts were longer, or perhaps there was just so much more money up front. It wasn't quite so vital. But now with the majority of us providing subscription-based services, SaaS and cloud-based services, of course, it's vital. And I think there's a transformation needed here. I can speak a little bit of Oracle here, but we started to change the way that we look at renewals, asking less of our renewals team and more of our frontline sales teams. And whilst you can play around with compensation and incentivization, of course, and we can talk about that, what you're really trying to do is say to an enterprise sales team, the renewal of that customer, even if it's just 20, 50,000 pounds, is as important as winning new business. Now, the question is, do you compensate that the same? And if you don't, then clearly in the salesperson's eyes, it's not going to be the same priority because it's not going to bring in the same amount of money. But I think it's a move in the right direction. And I think supported by things like customer success managers and technical account managers, I do see a move now to recognize the numbers are too low, the percentage renewals are too low, and something radical is going to be done about that. This is really interesting because I think one of the challenges, certainly in technology, and that, that's a lot of my business, in technology, I see people trying to sell product as opposed to really becoming commercially savvy and entrenched with the leadership of their customers, trying to understand their strategic objectives, their goals, their vision, and what they're trying to achieve in their business. And as a result, they have a tendency to be trapped in IT historically. I know that's changing significantly of late. But 80% of technology purchases this year, according to Forrester, will be made by the line of business. It's not going to be made by IT. IT is an enabler. And as we go more into the cloud and as a service, IT becomes less and less relevant. So what I'm curious about is how organizations are transforming their approach so that throughout the sale, the customer experience, the customer use of those products and the reason why behind it is put front and center instead of focusing just on shifting more tin. Yes, that's so interesting. One of the first things I do looking at a prospective enterprise company is I'll take a look at the board of directors. And I mean the actual people who are you know, controlling a stake of that business. If I can't see a CMO up there, that's really interesting. If I can't see a CIO up there, again, I can read a lot from that. If I was being harsh, I would say that the IT's had its shot. It had its chance of being a true innovation center in the business. And I don't think it took it. I think IT instead said, actually, we're too busy. We're too busy keeping these lights on. We've got Spaghetti Junction on-premise. We're now getting Spaghetti Junction in cloud, which is even worse. It's horrendous to fix it. We're going to outsource as much as we can, but don't come to us to actually change this business. We're just too busy. Now, come back to the CMO, and there's the massive opportunity. If IT have missed it, we need to make sure now that marketing doesn't. You can take the example of Mercedes-Benz, and they're coming to market now and saying, actually, don't buy or lease or hire a Mercedes, but actually subscribe to one. And that's great for the customer. They can scale up, they scale down the models depending on their needs. It's a done-for-you service. But it's twice as much. You could be paying $1,200 a month rather than $600 a month to be in and to be driving a Mercedes. The opportunity for marketing is to own that mindset shift, to own the experience for the customer, why it's different, why would you want to pay more, and be able to ride that back into the business. 
And marketing, therefore, can own the data around that and they can own the mindset around that. And that's how they can step up and take a seat on the board and actually drive the future of business like that. So I really hope they don't miss this opportunity. How interesting. Well, I think there's another side to this as well, which is the partner experience. Increasingly, 75% of all products sold globally, that's $15 trillion plus, goes through partners. And I think two areas of the business that have been the sort of bastard, ginger-haired, ugly stepdaughter of the <laughs> customer experience or customer service and customer experience and the channel. So I'm really curious to find out what's being done in terms of improving the partner experience. I could talk all day about war stories on the channel and the partners in B2B. I think the whole of the marketplace is held together with, with sticky tape, I, I believe. I think it's broken, and I think there's incredible opportunity. What I think Enterprise does well, I think, is recognition and to some extent training. And what I think it does badly is the process is to actually do a deal. And I see very little support for the partners and the channels around things like um, constructing deals, incentivizing marketing budget, spits, all those things together so that it's a frictionless experience for the partner. I think that's changing. We see a lot of B2B commerce coming through, which is useful for the partners, and it's obviously useful for the end customer as well. I think B2B and B2C together, I think they need to be very careful now. The technologists, that they don't, don't eradicate the value of the channel by going direct. We see people like Dyson and people like Glenn Heating and so on thinking, we can use IoT now to go direct to a customer and know who they are and use augmented reality to support them using the device and then they can have a relationship with us. And that's fantastic. But when you've got 70, 89% of your business going through the channel, it's a great risk. So I think the part of the community is one that can be energized a lot more and enabled. And I think enterprise forgets just how much flexibility the channel has to switch vendors or become a multi-vendor and I think it's taken for granted at the moment. But what do you think, Marcus? Absolutely. I think the channel is massively underserved and underserviced by vendors. And as a result, the vendor treats the partner as if they're the commodity provider. But increasingly, what we're seeing is more complexity. And it's the partners that are the glue that bring the solution to the end user. And the vendor is just one part of the stack. And increasingly, I think what we're going to see is more partner with partner alliances. And if you're not managing those relationships well and taking care of your partners, then you're going to find yourself locked out of very good deals. And particularly in the enterprise space, it's incredibly complex. And there's these decisions are strategic, they're expensive, they have a long-term impact. So I absolutely agree with you. I think it's very dangerous to go too much over to the other side. I think there is room for those technologies to enable closer interaction between the end user and the vendor. But I think ultimately what the customer wants is a seamless experience. And you mentioned you used the phrase frictionless. I think increasingly that's going to be the case. And in fact, I'm going to be interviewing Stephen Moritz, who was one of the senior guys at Capgemini and various others, historically, specifically about that subject. So have a listen to that when that comes out in the next couple of weeks. 
I will do, but I just add one more thing, if you don't mind, Marcus, yes, around speed. I just think vendors get in the way of partners in terms of speed. I'll give you one quick example, if you'd yeah. like. I certainly won't name names, or won't even name industries in this case, but this is a partner that's got a customer on the hook and they need a certain discount. This is just exposing the lack of technology here. So there is a self-service system you can go into, but hey, the partners don't really know how to use it and they haven't really been trained properly. So they avoid it and it just goes through email and the email just goes into the partner manager, can we have this discount? The partner manager, in this case, walked over to the, the finance director's office, finance controller, and says, I'd like to have this. BFC said, what's the reasoning? And they said, oh, I don't know. And then so BFC, she said no. And then the partner manager sat on that for two weeks because they were slightly embarrassed that they hadn't really got the discount they wanted. And they also wanted to make it look like they'd really tried hard to get it. So in two weeks later, they then emailed back and said, I've done everything I could. We just couldn't get this for you. And the deal was lost. And it just, <laughs> just terrible processes. But of course, what all you want is just transparent visibility. So this has been logged. Let the partner add more information as they need it. Let them have direct access to some decision makers and move this thing from weeks to hours. And if, if it is a no, let's have a really quick no, not a two weeks no. Let's have a 20-minute no. Again, this is really interesting. One of my MSP clients was going in with one of their vendors to sell to a company in the travel space. And the MSP has a good position in that space, but the vendor doesn't. And they went through the sales process. They were on about third, fourth meeting, and they were about to reach a decision. And then the vendor opened his mouth and ended up extending the sales cycle by about another 18 months because he didn't know how to keep his mouth shut. And this is one of the things that's a real bugbear for me and something that I'm working really hard to address which is the cohesion between the vendor and the partner and making sure that they speak the same language, that they are equally prepared, they're transparent, and they're working towards common purpose instead of working at odds with one another because that destroys the customer experience and it creates friction, it creates doubt in the buyer's mind. And if those two aren't unified, then what's the chance of this project working? In a sense, the wrong message. Yes, and I think some of that is compensation. Again, I was in with one of the uh, big four accountancies where they have a, a team of several hundred people who don't actually sell anything. Of course, it's only the part of the cut deal. So in effect, this is 300 very well-paid business development. What they have to do, therefore, if they can't put their name on an order document, is they need to show the effort and the work that's gone into a particular customer or into a particular deal. And I think we see the same thing in the channel as well. I think you need to have an opportunity for some of the best sales reps to be able to put their name against partner deals, be absolutely clear about the value they provide and the time they've put into something, and then have that conversation, recognize that. I don't see enough of that at the moment. Partners want those sales reps to help them close business. Absolutely agree. So that then brings up the next obvious question, which is who should own customer experience? And should they also be on the board? Are you thinking about a chief customer experience officer or are you saying that, are you asking me, should it be with one of the lines of business already? Well, I don't know, but I mean, a chief customer experience officer makes a lot of sense. I think ultimately that's probably going to be one of the routes to the CEO position. I think the head of CX, the head of data analytics and the head of channel will replace the CFO and the VP of sales. 
as the successor to the CEO. I think it's some way off. It makes a lot of sense to come. Oh, I, absolutely. I think those things absolutely are being united. But a little bit like my CMO example, I, I think people have to step up as well. And I remember spending a lot of time with the customer experience director who wasn't a board member. In fact, he was board plus two, I think, at one of the big MSPs, actually, the very biggest ones. And when I sat down with him, the opportunity he had was just unbelievable because they have a small customer base, but very, very high-value customers. And um, the renewal starts pretty much the day after the contract is signed. It's that important. So massive amounts of exposure to the customer and to the data and to what the customer strategy is and what they want to do next. And I thought, my goodness, you should be on the board because this data is the lifeblood of your business. He wasn't pushing for it. They weren't asking for it. And it was getting lost. And now I see that some of these things moved on to a different role in the business. Massive missed opportunity. This seems to be a pattern of behavior in organizations. And I put it down to the fact that that's not where leadership came from. There was a wonderful... Harvard Business Review article that came out in 2017, and it was republished from 1997, which basically said, we're dinosaurs, we don't change, and nothing is going to change. And they republished it word for word, and he was absolutely right. Nothing had changed in terms of their behavior. And I think it comes, it stems from people having these cognitive biases, which is, well, that's not how we got here, and they can't let go. So a huge question that comes to mind here is how does one use the customer experience journey in order to attack oneself to make sure that you're evolving and staying in step with where your customers, where your partners, where your competitors are? That's really interesting. The answer to me feels something around culture and mindset, particularly sales culture and sales mindset. And I think this is hugely untapped across many, many businesses because it comes right back to the beginning of the life cycle of you as a business and what you stand for and what your mission is. And we've got a strategy day with one of my customers coming up where we've got a lot of great material we're going to go through them in terms of testing on digital culture and change and these kind of things. But we're going to be just really checking as well. What does this mission mean to them? How are they acting on this? The reason they've got us in, by the way, is that they were a niche niche vendor that grew and grew and grew. And now they've been diluted so much that when they go into see a client, that client says, well, XYZ company does that as well, and cheaper than you. And so they've suddenly found that they've been diluted to the point where they can either drop their prices or they can start to find what they stand for in the market again. One thing we did recently at an exec dinner was to compare what you're talking about to Maslow's hierarchy of need. And if you look at that from Let's just talk about the front-end people here for a minute, the salespeople. When they join that business, they have basic survival needs. You can imagine the kind of things they need access to systems and people and so on. But as you go right up the way to the top, the first thing you write is they achieve their quota, and that's fine. That's the nuts and bolts of being in business. But actually, you start asking questions like, well, how do you want this person to talk about your business when they're networking? How do you want this person to be talking about your business when they're down the pub with some friends or business friends? What's this perception? Because if you get that right and you put some meaning into that, then that's going to cross its way across divisions and areas of the business. And the customer's going to pick up on that. But that, that's a real shift. And it's a shift like Microsoft's been doing. 
And I can tell you from behind the scenes that Microsoft has changed its commission plans now for its salespeople, where at least about half that money now is coming to them by recognition of how they're supporting the customer and how they are supporting their peers. It's about tracking the good that you're doing in that organization and then using a judgment call to pay out on that. And I think that's really positive. I absolutely agree. That said, it's a massive cultural shift away from, and it's a very Western perspective as well, which came from ancient Greece, which is all about self-reliance. And that culture has been imbued within our business culture, where it's about personal contribution and self-sufficiency. Whereas if we look further east, it's all about working as a team collectively. And I'm curious whether or not we are going to fall behind our Chinese competitors, for example, because of the emphasis on the team, on collective good rather than the individual good. So I know we're delving into the realms of philosophy here, but it, it, it's, like it's being really important that we understand where our competition is going to come from. Because it's my view, in the next 30 years, that the Chinese will become the dominant superpower. They're very powerful in terms of their soft power, and they don't muscle in with their military. So they're not creating the same kind of negative sentiment that the Americans are and the Brits did historically. So I'm really curious to see whether or not companies are looking that far ahead, because Oriental companies, Japanese and Chinese, have 100-year plans. And we work quarter yes. quarter. I don't think you can really deliver a fantastic customer experience if you're worrying only about this quarter's numbers. Yes. There's a number of different points in there. You've talked about China. I do some work with China. For a start, they work different hours to us. Their English is exceptional in a lot of cases, and they're very, very diligent. I agree with what you're saying. I also wonder whether they're going to have a, a culture shift as well in the future where they feel that actually they're working too long, too hard, and that isn't right because working six days a week, nine till nine, is normal over there, but it's a lot of hours. They have an opportunity. I mean, we can all read the news and see what China's doing, although clearly we're only reading the bits that are translated into English, I might add, is they might export their culture. They've put a, a lot of time and effort into AI and facial recognition and, and using that to moderate a society. Probably considered to be the better, but you could argue dystopian aspects of that, of course, as well. You could find certain countries, whether it's in Africa or places like that, actually just taking that wholesale. And just like we all took Hollywood and Disneyland and Big Macs in the past from America, we may be taking something slightly different from China in the future. You touched on a little bit of philosophy there, and I think these things do come into these kind of discussions, especially when you look at the macroeconomics around the world. And not to pick on India, which is a fabulous country, but maybe not competing in China in the same ways because of the way they think about the individual, perhaps rather than teams. If I go down to my local car dealership and I spend days arguing and negotiating with them to take a thousand pounds off the, the list price of a Mercedes, that thousand pounds comes out of society. It doesn't exist anymore. It's come out of economics. And um, so that's great for me at the micro level. I've just saved a thousand pounds, but it's really bad for society because it sets a precedent that individuals should flourish ahead of the, the group, the collective. And with that in mind, you would say, well, actually, why even negotiate on the car? Why not just steal it? 
because then it's the absolute best deal for me. I get a free car. Then you start finding that you're in countries with, with bribery and corruption and so on. And of course, if you've got corruption, everything else fails because all people like you and I want to do is have the opportunity to have a fair society to build a business and make our money and pay our taxes. And if that doesn't work, then the whole society doesn't work. So it's a bit of an esoteric answer, but I think the more that we can become collaborative, where we saw competition before, both internally, and there's lots of competition internally in Oracle, and externally with, with our peers, then we're all going to get much better, because if you want to touch on it, think about the massive inefficiencies that we have when several competing teams are running sales processes that are the same, where a winner takes all, or potentially nobody wins because the customer changed their mind. I see so much opportunity there. I agree. What I'm really curious about is if we look at the uh, structure of enterprise sales organizations, what we often have are silos. And there tends to be a competitive blame culture. And what I'm curious about is are you seeing any trends and any good examples of where organizations are creating cohesion so that from the initial outreach through to the renewal 10 years down the road, the customer is experiencing a seamless approach. It feels like they are at the front and the center of everything that company does. Instead of, it's not my problem. A great example of this is when you phone the banks. So recently my cards were hacked and I had to phone up and wait for 45 minutes. Then I got through to an operator who then told me that he couldn't deal with it because it was another team and they weren't in until 8 o'clock the following morning. Now, if it wasn't down to apathy, I'd have probably moved my account. And I think I've been left with a sour taste in my mouth. So when it becomes, it probably is easier. My wife takes care of all of my finances. I'm not allowed to in my bank account. If the opportunity arose, I don't really feel a sense of loyalty towards that organization because that's one of several experiences where it's felt disjointed, where I wasn't at the heart of what they were trying to achieve in terms of my relationship, and I didn't feel valued. What can be done in order to create greater cohesion between the different departments and functions within an organization to improve the customer experience? Yes, there was quite a lot in there, so you simply put it down into this, this idea of how do we join up the dots. I suppose I would say that the dots need to be joined internally and externally at the same time. We've talked about this idea of omnichannel for a while, but you call it omni, perhaps multi is more appropriate because they don't need to be absolutely everywhere. But it's this idea that you have the same experience. And we see this in, in retail quite easily, that you want somebody to be able to pick up the purchase at the next point, whether it's a different device, a different browser, maybe they can continue the journey by voice, smart speaker, whatever. And we, we get all that. And I think in B2B, there's massive opportunity to join up parts of the business that aren't at the moment. But I think there has to be some equality around that. And whilst companies see the winning solutions or products in their toolkit and focus more on those, then the customer suffers because actually they're just trying to push the highest profitable items. That's, that can be one challenge. And I worked with a company recently where they've got a massive opportunity in a, in a division that could grow tenfold. 
But when it came to incentivization of that, the salespeople were simply just paid less to focus on that. So this thing suffers. So trying to pull all this together, I think technology has a lot of the answers. We see definite progress here. I mean, in, in the past, you would just have this completely different experience with your home shopping than you would with um, trying to make a, a business purchase. We've broken down the barriers and the silos of that now so that companies are no longer starting your journey with a login page. They're starting as, as a retailer would now with your products. They're able to connect up your silo data so that they can give you the personalized experience based on who you are, what position you're in, and what company you work for, and so on, even without being logged in, sometimes just using cookies and, and data scrapes, some of which I admit are a little bit gray hat, but it does mean the experience is better. And that means that your previous purchases are there and your ability to click an order and have somebody automatically approve that at your end, part of the you know, automatic process that goes on and, and the price list is right for you. The products that you buy are right for you. And, and so to do all that, in summary, you've got to join up internally. You've got to have the teams working internally, setting out a, a vision for that customer that means they're, they're working and speaking together. They're in the same offices, they're socializing, they're understanding that need. And at the end result of that is a customer who, who just notices this fast, frictionless service where they don't even see the joins. I work with a hotel group, and one of the actions that we're taking is getting the different departments, so inbound, outbound sales, marketing, the catering and food and beverage, housekeeping, all to spend time in each other's roles and to have people from those teams attend the sales meetings to make sure that they have input. Because I think an awful lot of insight and knowledge is lost where you silo and where there's this clunky handover between the different departments. The hospitality industry has historically been quite good making sure people feel valued. But actually, if you look under the surface, what that's tended to mean is they've had to do a lot of stuff bespoke rather than really ensure that there is a seamless process and everybody understands what everyone else's contribution is to their work. So I love what you're saying about the idea of having that cohesion. This raises the next question again, because obviously there's an awful lot of talk about machine learning and AI and automation. At what point do you draw the line and make sure that there's still some human-to-human contact? I think this is really interesting. And I was speaking to the digital manager of a not-for-profit organization recently, and they switched on a new natural language processing intelligent chatbot. And they asked the existing support team to help them to, to build this. And there was, there was real friction, real, real pain going on in that organization as, as these intelligent people were, were saying, well, it seems a lot like we're digging our own graves here by giving this robot everything that we do. So why should we help? But they went for it and they did it anyway. And they switched this thing on and they now, it's only been on a few months, but they're getting about 46% more chats than they had before. The simple reason for that, by the way, is that they've gone from nine to five to 24 by seven using the chat bot. They get a 50% of those new chats are in a foreign language that they didn't have before. I guess people just assumed there was no point in chatting in French or whatever because that didn't seem like it was an option. And so they're using translation services on that as well. The number of live chats with support agents during the day has 
risen ever so slightly. I mean, uh, it's probably just risen anyway, but the point is it hasn't gone down. So they've had no job losses whatsoever. Now, flip this across, and you've got 3.5 million truck drivers in the US who spend most of their time driving on long, big So machine learning, AI, particularly robotic process automation, RPA, is absolutely making companies more efficient. And that efficiency is being pulled out of FTE hours worked. What people are finding is that they put in RPA, for example, and then they say, right, okay, who, who can we lose? And the answer is you can't lose one person. It isn't John who did all of that. John did a couple of hours, well, Jane did a couple of hours work on it. So you can't just fire somebody. So that's good. But the emphasis is on us, the workers as well, and, and everybody in, in the, the circle of business life is that we have to address this as well and find areas like creativity and like relationships and so on with our customers where we're completely valuable and can't be replaced by automation or machine learning. Because we know that things work best when, at the moment at least, the reasonable future, humans and machines together is the most powerful. And we saw that in chess, where Kasparov was beaten by a Deep Blue, as it was at the time back in the day. And then ultimately now we find that the absolute best chess player in the world is a combination of AI and a human team together. They're unbeatable by either humans or machines independently. Absolutely. So central chess is the model we should be pursuing. Yes, I think so. And I just think there's so much opportunity. And I sit on the fence on this because I think there will be massive areas of disruption. I think retail is one as well, all these, these cashiers. I just, I don't think that's a viable job in the future. But we're just unlocking so many other jobs and so much more opportunity that I think the problem with futurism, which is what we see, is that you can't just take one thing and put it into the existing landscape. And that's why we're having so much trouble with autonomous vehicles, because we can't just take a self-driving car and put it on Oxford Street. You can't do it. It's nuts. That's like getting a, a road full of horse and carriages and putting a Lamborghini on there. It would be a disaster. So you have to change the platform. And that's what we're going to see in, in the world of work as well. We're not just going to be putting chatbots and RPAs and other things into the landscape. Now, the whole landscape is going to change of what it is to be in business, asking the right questions to get the right answers. And that's just going to be so different. We can't just say there's going to be job losses. There's going to be a platform change. This is really interesting. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time. I would love to have a further conversation with you, if I may. I'd love that. Yes, thank you. Great. Let's wrap up. Two questions then. What are you reading? What are you watching that you'd recommend other people read and watch in terms of podcasts, TED Talks, anything like that, or great books? I'm very, very keen on the podcasts. I spend my time actually with people like Sam Harris and even Tim Ferriss and others like that because I think they attract the highest quality of guests and I think they've worked the hardest on their questioning style, which isn't sadly lacking for the number of other podcasts, not yourselves, of course, which is fantastic. <laughs> and I'm reading everything I can get my hands on now around AI and machine learning. It's still very much a nascent area, which means now's the opportunity to really get your head around machine learning and neural networks and, and back propagation to see what's really going on. So don't listen to the news. Do your own research and find out what you think is happening in artificial intelligence, what that means for you, how you can start to mitigate for that now over the next 5, 10, 20 years, how you can use that to create more, more wealth and opportunity and meaning in your life. And I'm happy to put a few suggestions across for books, but there's loads out there. I'll add them to the summary of 
the podcast. Final question then. Looking back in your history, if you were advising your 21-year-old to avoid acts of idiocy and self-sabotage, what would you suggest? I think the biggest lesson I've learned, and I'm 36 now, is that inner critic is so much more harsh than anybody else to the <laughs> level of absurdity. <laughs> and I wouldn't let anybody else speak to me the way that I speak to myself. And we're all running a million miles an hour, and we're all doing the very best that we can. And I guess I would say to myself and others, you know, and I, and I met up with a couple of 20-somethings the other day, just coming out of uni, they're amazing guys, a million times better than I was when I was 20. But it's just, just go easy on yourself. Absolutely. It's a changing world, but the race is not. Be your own best friend, learn to forgive yourself, and be yes. I absolutely agree. I think that's fantastic advice. Richard, thank you ever so much. This has been enlightening. I can't wait for our next conversation. I'll be posting uh, the books that Richard recommends on the copy that goes with this podcast. Please comment, like, share, and get involved. If you've got topics that you'd like to discuss with me as well, feel free to get in touch, and let's see if we can arrange an interview. Richard Foster Fletcher, thank you very much for being my fantastic guest today. Thoroughly enlightening. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Marcus. It's a pleasure. This is Marcus Cowkey from the Inquisitor Podcast signing off. And please like, share, and comment. Thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs>